Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 14th, 2020. It is a Wednesday, and that means it is interview day. And I have one of the, the favorite type of interviews that I can do. Um... I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite interviews because like there's a bunch that are like in my favorites, but this is in the top of the top list. That is when you're talking to somebody who's just living the homesteading life, living the entrepreneur life, being a polymath, raising kids, doing things the right way, building self-sufficiency and self-reliance into their life, making a go of it, not necessarily doing it on like a thousand acres, in this case doing it on just under an acre, and coming to us and telling us about their life. Uh, I'll be bringing on our special guest today in just a second, Corey Bartholomew. Uh, she's awesome, awesome lady, doing some really cool stuff. We're going to be talking about so much today. Entrepreneurship, canning and preserving, cooking from scratch, homeschooling while working full-time. And the challenges entrepreneurship applies to that because it gives a lot of advantages, but it puts challenges in it too. Meal planning on a budget, general self-sufficiency, homemade holidays and birthday gifts, living in that northeastern climate that they're in that has so much going for it but has some challenges too. The true nature of self-sufficiency and kind of just overall the polymath approach to homesteading. So this is going to be great. It's going to be part of the Women of Prepping series, which gals, uh, you can't apply to be on the show right now. The guest form is down. It's coming back on the 10th of December because we're booked through the end of the year right now. And we, we try not to book more than about two and a half months out because things change in people's lives and things get disrupted and stuff like that. So we don't want to be booking in January right now. But I could use more in this series. I am an equal opportunity podcaster. I will bring anybody on who has something interesting to talk about. So mark your calendars if you want to be on the show as part of the Women of Prepping series or for any reason. December 10th, the guest form will reappear like magic on the website, and I have a feeling that it will then fill up uh, the month of January very, very quickly with about the five shows we'll be doing in January. Just a little update there. Uh, before I bring Corey on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Western Botanicals. I have always tried to rely on herbs first in my life, and herbs have done wonderful things for me. The problem with the industry that is herbal medicines is that it is full of snake oil salesmen. So when Western Botanicals approached me over 10 years ago now and said, we want to sponsor the show, and I took a look at what they do and their reputation and their philosophy and the way they handle their customers, I was like, this is a perfect match. And they've been with us now, like I said, for over a decade. They give away their premier membership, which is a $50 membership, for free to MSB members. That is that is going to pay for your first year of MSB alone. They have real people that really care about you that really will answer the phone in Utah, not in New Delhi, that will answer the phone and assist you with any of your needs. And their stated goal is to put an herbalist in every home in America. Having a goal larger than yourself, that's the kind of company I want to deal with. Western Botanicals, check them out and you'll see why. They are the place for all your herbal needs. Next up today, the Free State Project. Liberty in our lifetime is possible. The people of the Free State Project have done everything they can to drag New Hampshire, if they have to, kicking and screaming closer to the world of liberty. And I, what I love about them is they're open to everybody and they do it in all aspects. They have people that move up there and they get political. 
They get political in the conventional sense. They have people that are now uh, serving in government in New Hampshire that are very, very libertarian. They'll run as a Republican or a Democrat, whichever one makes more sense on the ticket, but they're libertarians. And that's awesome. They also have people who are purist anarchists that will not get involved with the government process directly at all. There is more agorism going on in that world than you can imagine. And everybody gets along. I've been to events at the Free State Project where you've got a guy in a three-piece suit sitting next to a guy with earrings that you can see through to his neck. And they all get along. You know why? Because they are all bound by one common ideal. Liberty. True liberty. The liberty where you get the freedom to do what you want as long as you're not harming anybody else. But the, the price of that liberty is allowing everyone else to have it too. Check them out today and learn more at fsp.org forward slash visit, visit NH. That's what they're asking you to do now. Just kind of take a visit of New Hampshire. Next time you're going to take a vacation, go to New Hampshire for a few days. Give them a call, connect with them first, and they'll put you in touch with people in the area of New Hampshire you want to visit. You can just have a great vacation, but also have some local support and find out more about the Free State Project. Again, you can learn more at fsp.org today. With that, let's, before we bring on our special guest, uh, <laughs> have a quote of the day. This is a new one for me. I, I A lot of times I just like, I want to kind of associate this thing with today's show, and so I start looking for quotes on it, and I find really cool stuff, and that's why I do the quote of the day, to share it with you and to broaden your perspective. I think great quotes, that's what they do for us. They broaden our perspective. It's not necessarily you'll remember them all. I sure won't. Or remember who said them all. I sure won't. But you become familiar with the concepts, and they help broaden your view of the world. And with polymath, you really got to. For those that are not familiar with the term polymath, as I throw that term around, that's a person that's good at a lot of things, right? Or good at a lot of things. A classic polymath that would be from the genius level would be Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was another polymath. Uh, Carl Krauss, who I'd never heard of until today, once said this about a polymath. I had a terrible vision. I saw an encyclopedia walk up to a polymath and open him up. And I think that's a lot of times when you meet people who live a polymath lifestyle, how you feel. It's like talking to a walking encyclopedia. You want me to tell you the secret about having people look at you and view you that way? Learn a lot about a lot of things and only talk about those things. And whenever you're talking about something that's not one of those things, use what you know about those things to ask about and learn about the new things. And then you always sound like you really know what you're talking about, whether you do or you don't. And with that, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest on the Survival Podcast today. Hey, Corey, welcome to the Survival Podcast. All right, folks, and with that, I want to say, hey, Corey, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hey, I, you know, I got to say, this is the kind of interview I love to do. Real people living in the real world, doing a whole bunch of stuff to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, homesteading, and, you know, kind of figuring out as they go and, and, and refining their system, and then coming from a female perspective on top of that. It's just, it's like the perfect interview to get to do, and I, I wish I got to do more of them. Before we dig into this, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship, canning and preserving, cooking from scratch, you know, homeschooling while working full-time, meal planning, all kinds of really cool stuff. Let's go back to before you were homesteading. Like, what is your background? Did you grow up with stuff like this, or is this something you found later in life? Um, so I didn't necessarily grow up with this. I did come from a farming family. Both my parents' family, they were farmers, 
So it's always been in my blood. Um, but I did not grow up canning and preserving and a lot of stuff like that. It wasn't until I met my husband and we just, we started to do this together. So that's when I got really serious about it. Gotcha. Um, and you, you guys are entrepreneurs. How has entrepreneurship shaped your life and allowed you to maintain self-sufficiency? And I imagine especially recently through like this pandemic and things like that. Yeah, so I have been working for myself for, I believe, like 11 years now, something like that, 12. And my husband just started working for himself in July. So what being an entrepreneur gives us is is freedom, really. Uh, we are able to choose how we spend our time and the things that are important to us, and we never have to worry about being without work essentially because we always know how to hustle and we always know how to get done what needs to be done you know when i when i re read through like your notes for today's show it's like i said it's one of the shows i love to do what i the, the word that keeps coming into my head is polymath i mean it seems to me like you guys have ha had to learn to do a little bit of everything and then be really good at a few things oh yeah for sure for sure i uh I don't like kind of like jack of all trades type of thing. I really try to hone my skills in and get really good at certain things. But for the most part, we try to have general knowledge about a lot of different things because it helps us in whatever we're doing. Gotcha, gotcha. So you guys do uh, canning, right? So kind of what is your style and method for canning and preserving food in general? So I'm the canning queen. <laughs> <laughs> I primarily, my husband does all the gardening for the most part. He plants it, seeds it, and then he gives it to me, and I do all the preservation. So I have different methods, and I've switched up how I do it over the years. I uh, have recently gotten comfortable with pressure canning, so I've been doing a lot more of that. And last year, for the first time, we pressure canned our venison that we got. And I'm super excited to get pretty serious about that this year. So it really depends on what kind of food we get, what we're preserving from the garden, the way I, I like to cook it, how I choose my preservation method. We, so while I have a lot of canning, I dehydrate some, I freeze some, and I think that's, yeah, dehydrate and I freeze and can mostly. So those are your big three. What is the type of stuff that you choose to dehydrate instead of can, for instance? So my favorite snack, personally, I love dehydrated cherries. <laughs> so that's one thing. Sometimes I'll freeze them, but for the most part, they get eaten more when I dehydrate them. We love to do jerky, of course, and I dehydrate all my herbs. Very cool. So, yeah, yeah. Do you guys, do you guys grow cherries? I mean, what's your property like? So we live on just shy of an acre up in, we're near Binghamton, New York in Conklin. And we have, we've been able to do quite a bit with this little spot here. So we don't grow cherries here, although we did just add cherry trees this year. Okay. So hopefully we will get some yields out of them next year. But usually I like to take my son and him and I will go cherry picking. There's a, an orchard close by. 
And that's where I primarily get strawberries, blueberries, cherries, things like that. So we do do some outsourcing depending on the needs and whether or not it benefits us to create room on our plot of land for whatever crop we're looking to grow or looking to have in our house. So um, let's talk a little bit about the property and, and what you have done with it. I mean, like I imagine gardens, bushes, trees, stuff like that. Like where would you start with and where are you kind of heading with that? So when we first moved into our house, it, the house was small, but like this land that we had, it's just like tucked back into this tiny corner. And it was, like I said, it's just shy of an acre and it was bare. There was nothing on it. So we've been here about six years now. And since then we put in a chicken coop. We've got a very large garden. We've got, what do I see out there? Four raised beds, five raised beds, uh, a greenhouse, a cute little, my husband built this adorable fireplace area where we have stools and benches and we're right next to a creek. So we have that in the background. He is the garden master. So his, he kind of, that's his baby. And we talk about the plans about what we're going to do from year to year. But for the most part, he has that cultivated and and done in such a way that works well for him to navigate. So he's got big, big plans coming up for 2021. He's going to do all raised beds, and um, we do have some trees out there, too. He's added an apple tree. We've got two pear trees. We have a, a peach tree. None of them are producing just yet because they're relatively new. Mm-hmm. So... And again, I think I said the cherry trees. And I believe we have ooh, an elderberry bush that hopefully will produce for us next fall. It'll produce. Everything freaking grows in, in the Northeast. I mean, it, it until winter. <laughs> But it all comes back. It's it's really a great climate, y'all are. And it's one of the most explosive growth climates there is. It, it always rains enough. The temperature is ideal for your... You know, kind of your your crops that fit that anyway. It's uh, it's something I miss a lot of when I think about growing up in Pennsylvania. Very similar climate. It, elderberries, you'll you'll be pulling some out and giving them to the neighbors. I'm telling you, they're, they're going to go insane up there. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah, and you're right. An acre, you can do a lot with an acre. You guys said you have a chicken coop. How many how many birds do you keep? We have 13 little ladies out there. Wow. And we also have a rabbit hutch. I almost, I forgot to put this in my notes. We have a rabbit hutch out there. We do, currently we're not, but we breed, we've bred rabbits in the past for meat. So right now we have two females out there and they're super sweet. And that's the, the extent of like our livestock. Mm. Mm. Yeah, rabbits are a great meat crop. It just, it's, it's one of those things I've weighed doing. And it's like, okay, that's one more thing to do. And I think it's it's good that you you know you decide okay this is this is what we're gonna do and then we're gonna get this to work and then we'll think about adding more and when we get to a point where I don't have fun anymore we stop adding stuff I think that's something a lot of homesteaders tend to get really in over their head with by going too fast and not finishing one thing before adding the next thing or what have you oh yeah we've been guilty of that as <laughs> <laughs> have we all now you cook a lot from scratch. Uh, How do you simplify that to the point where you actually have time to do it? I mean, everybody 
that's not an entrepreneur, especially a work-from-home entrepreneur, thinks, oh, this is so great. You guys work like three hours a day, and it's easy, and you know, you work from your kitchen table in your underwear like an 80s infomercial or something like that. And that's not the case. I mean, being an entrepreneur often means more freedom, but it also, in many cases, means more work. So how do you simplify everything down to where you can cook from scratch and have the time and, and give your family that, that home-cooked stuff? So that has taken me years to to kind of get to a place where I'm comfortable with. I've had to learn to let go of some things. I've had to learn to adapt a little bit. I think canning and preserving my summer harvest really helps to cook from scratch and making sure that I've got like those staples set in place already for me so that come wintertime, you know, when we're crazy busy with work or whatever, you know, dinner can be ready in just a few minutes. I can pop open a can of venison. I can heat up a can of green beans and mash some potatoes and dinner's ready. I also, you know, there's certain things they do like in the, mostly in the wintertime, but like I'll bake bread every other week and I'll make two loaves at once. It takes no extra time, freeze one, and then I have the other. So you just learn these little tricks as you go along the way, and it makes things come together so much quicker when you don't always have time, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, I think a big part of that, too, is balancing it with, okay, what will I put on the table and the kids will freaking eat it, right? I mean, that's like that's like so easy for me now because, you know, I have grandkids. Mm -hmm. When they don't eat, I send them home, right? Yeah. You know I mean, it's easy. Like, I remember being a, a father of, you know, you know, young kids and having to try to balance that all out. But I did find the magical secret to that is if you don't give them other things, they'll eventually eat what you make them. Yes. Yes, they will. <laughs> you know, if you don't always get out the box of mac and cheese when they're unhappy, that, that's I, I notice that a lot. And you know, you go to some place and people do a really good job of providing a great meal, and you know, mommy's there with her her five year old, and out comes the she's making her own mac and cheese for her kid. I'm just thinking, man, I bet you're going to tell me how hard your life is. And I wonder if you're making it that way. And I, I think the simplified method of living. Um, You know, people learn to adapt to their environments and provide a good environment. You get a good experience, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, cooking for kids is, is hard sometimes. Like, we've never really, with our sons, Pat, we've always introduced him to everything, but he's a picky eater. Yeah. Despite our best efforts. But I, I have some core recipes that I know are good for, like, Dan and I, and that I know, you know, my son Gatlin will eat. So I try to cook as much of those as possible and granted there are nights I you give know, up I've, I've been there <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say that but you know for the most part I try to you know like 95% of the time yeah he eats what I put on the table that's great that's great um you also homeschool what led you to make that decision and then With the busy lifestyle y'all live, you know, how are you able to, to do that? Because that's the number one question I get about homeschooling. How the hell am I supposed to homeschool? We work full-time or what have you. Yeah, so it's it's been interesting. So our son is in first grade, so this will be our second year homeschooling. We've always talked about doing it. Uh, I was homeschooled for part of my schooling career, uh, junior high, 8th, ninth, and 10th. 
So I was familiar with the process. It was actually my husband who was like really pushing to homeschool. And it was me that was like, I don't have time because even though I'm an entrepreneur, I don't work from home. I'm a hairstylist, so I have to go to my salon and work. Even though I get to make my own hours, I still have to be there. So it's been tricky, but it also requires so much less time than people realize when you actually sit down to do school. I would say when I sit down to do schoolwork with him, it takes me around an hour and a half to two hours. And some days we get it all in and I feel like I've checked all the boxes. And other days I'm like, this is not going to happen. We're just going to read books today Mm -hmm. and we're going to find other ways. Cause he's a very, he's a kinesthetic learner. So he likes to do things. He's a little boy. So he's constantly moving and going. So some days it's a lot harder to set him down and, and, you know, get what I think is quality work out of him. So you kind of learn to be flexible with that and meet him where he's at. And at six, he wants to play games. He wants to be outside. He wants to be doing something with his hands. So I, you know, I try to, to work with him from there and I'm, you know, my husband, he does the schoolwork with me. It's not just me doing it all. It's both of us doing it together. And we've even outsourced a time or two, like his, you know, his grandmother will do a lesson with him or his grandfather or his auntie or, you know, whoever. So it's, it, we all pitch in, we all do it together. And it's been a super fun journey. I'm kind of obsessed with homeschooling. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So are you um, kind of doing a role of your own? Are you using a curriculum? Are you doing a mix? How, how are you uh, coming at that approach? So for kindergarten, I did a straight curriculum. I used a whole curriculum, and it was fun. It was a great – it was um, Blossom and Root is what it was called, and it was great. I liked it. But then I got brave for first grade, and I decided that I was just going to kind of pick and choose different – pieces that worked for me and for our family. So, and I kind of gave myself permission to not follow the curriculum page by page, pick and choose what works for us. He loves learning about animals. So I incorporate that any way I can. Um, He really loves geography, loves learning about the different continents and stuff. So we incorporate that any way we can. But our primary focus right now, him being six and in first grade is basic math and reading anything else kind of is a bonus. And I try to focus heavy on, you know, making sure he knows his vowels and learning how to add and things like that. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, and we kind of go where his interests lead. Like right now he's crazy into Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) He kept telling me like, mommy, I want to learn about Bigfoot. I want to learn about Bigfoot. And I didn't know how I was going to turn that into school, but turns out there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down. And I found all sorts of how tall is Bigfoot based on his footprint. There's your math and geometry, right? I mean, <laughs> all the places he's quote unquote been seen geography you know, the country. That's geography. Like we found some super age appropriate chapter books that he loves. Yeah. What would Bigfoot eat? Nutrition. I mean, like, you could, like, that's what I've been saying for years that, like, this obsession with, you know, like, some group of special bean headed people that are better than you have to develop an educational program a specific way or it's not going to work is, is intellectually idiotic. I mean, 
people have learned the way you're describing for the majority of history. You know, you're talking about yeah, outsourcing to grandma or whatever. I think it's good that kids learn from more than one source. That shows them that knowledge is not from that source, but knowledge is a thing that many people have access to that they can too. And if all these geniuses are so great at putting their curriculum together, then why would it be the case the people that they gave the curriculum to and taught wouldn't be able to do the same thing? Right, so you know what I mean, like, like so we're uh, we're uh, you know this prestigious academic class that can educate children, and you can't. Well, you educated me, so what you're saying is your educational program is so pathetic that it does not empower me to teach people what I've learned. And I, I look at that, and I, I back that up against like our philosophy from the military, which was see it, do it, teach it, know it. Right, so if you can't teach it, you don't know it. So if the, to me. Their claim that we can't teach, while false, if it were true, would prove that neither can they. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that's, you know, kind of roundabout doublespeak, but it, it, it's, it, to me it's totally valid. Like, of course you could teach the second grade. You graduated from it, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I think kids, you know, do learn great that way. And I think, you know, you, you, your kiddos six, we're dealing kind of with a pseudo pre-K arrangement with a four-year-old right now. Mainly because it keeps her away from her brother while he's doing his schoolwork, so he can actually do it. Um, and there's a dramatic difference in how a four-year-old learns and how a, a nine-year-old learns. You know, our, our nine-year-old grandson at this point, here is your daily stuff. Work on it. Come to us if you need help. Nine nine days out of ten, an hour and a half later, I'm done. And we're log we have an online portal we can log into and look at his work, and it's all great. You know, one day out of ten, I can't figure this out. Grandma or grandpa helps, and he rolls on. And I think that if you educate a kid properly, that's where you're aiming to get to. But expecting to be there with a five-year-old is just, I don't know. Like, that's like expecting to hand a freaking a group of potheads a box of chocolates and come back and have any left in the box. Like, that's not that's not happening today. <laughs> I really hope you understand that. And I I think that. That's the difference. Like when we're teaching these younger children, four, five, six, seven years of age, we're not trying to do what the school system does because the majority of what they're trying to teach them is to sit down and not move. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's 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 actually. And when parents are like, well, worried about that, like, no, that's why you put. That's why you took them out of school. Yeah. Because that's not natural behavior, right? Yeah. No, for sure, for sure. He he has always been a. He plays a lot, so I knew that homeschooling would be great for him because it would allow him those extra few years to just really be a kid and to, to play. He should be playing. He should be playing with his toys. He should be outside riding his bike. We just got him a four-wheeler this year, and he loves that. So, yeah, that's that's a big reason why we we really wanted to, to homeschool. You know, before we move on from homeschooling, I give just give you an example of what you might be looking forward to as he develops, you know, because this was like – The day that I was like, not only am I happy about this decision, but I know that deciding to do it for my kids was right, to homeschool the grandkids for them. I, I come out, and my grandson is sitting on the floor. My, my wife had left with the younger girl to go do some stuff, so he's on his own to do his work that day because I've got to do mine. And I come out, and he's, he's doing his work, and he's sitting on the floor on a, a, like a mattress pad that we have with the dog, and they're doing the work together, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. I come back out in about 15 minutes, and he's in the fetal position, laying with the dog. The dog's got his head on him, and he's taking a nap. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I made a deal with him. I made a deal with him. He gets his work done every day, and as long as his work gets every done every day, he can have all the freedom he wants. If he wants to take a nap, he wants to take a nap. I come back out 15 minutes later. He's up finishing his work. 
And I'm like, that's exactly, like, you know, yeah. that's exactly how a kid should live. Like, you're growing. You're, at that age, they're growing so fast. Times, you know, they need rest to, to yeah. let the body uh, adjust. And I was like, this is like a perfect learning environment. And, you know, our deal with him was he gets freedom. Yeah. And, and whenever he starts to, like, push back on doing the work, it's like, remember our deal? Oh, yeah. And boom. And it's 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 so empowering to see that kid because, like, You're an entrepreneur. Your husband's moving into entrepreneurship. Like that's a, that's a child that grows up with, if they want to, the ability to be an entrepreneur. Where, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself, so you probably can relate to this. I feel like either you battle the entire time you're in that system, so that you come out able to be an entrepreneur, or when you decide you want to be an entrepreneur, it's almost like going through a recovery program. If yeah. you if you didn't fight all the way through it to, to stay independent minded, because you're not you know a, a kid that comes out of high school or or university, in general, if they didn't already have like something you couldn't suppress, they're not able to think like an entrepreneur. It's impossible. They've been conditioned yeah. to do a thing and be judged on it. Yeah, no, totally, I totally agree. Yes, absolutely. I've 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 been there. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on from homeschooling. We talked about like cooking from scratch, but I, I would imagine like one of the things that makes it doable in addition to like having some core recipes and all this is meal prep. And that's something I think not enough people engage in. I I don't myself because I'm the guy that's like, what do we got to eat tonight? Okay, I'll cook it. And that doesn't bother me. And I love to cook, but I also, you know, the grandkids go home at the end of the day. It's just me and the wife. It's a lot easier with a family. I imagine meal prep probably plays a big role in, in, in enabling your lifestyle and in making sure everybody eats healthy and, and what have you most of the time. Yeah, so I've done it several different ways over the years. I've done the whole, I signed up for like a month's worth of freezer meals and I've taken a whole weekend and I've chopped and I've prepped and I've done all of that. And that was fun, but holy crap, is that a lot of work. Yeah. So... Kind of what I do now, if, you know, I mo primarily do this when I know I'm going into a super busy week or a super busy month or something like that. I'll plan like roughly two weeks out. And my favorite types of meals to plan are like crock pot, dump and go stuff. So I've got it narrowed down. I combed through some recipes and I've got this binder that I threw together that's got all of my favorite go-to recipes. And I'll just collect you know, 10 of them, make sure I have all the ingredients, throw them all together quick, toss them in the freezer if I have to, and then dinner's ready to go for the next roughly two weeks. And I keep, you know, and then I have, like, basic thing. Like, like today I threw in a chicken, like a whole chicken from the crowd. I'll get one of those out once a week or something. Mm -hmm. And just mentally prepare. Sometimes I'll get real serious and I'll write everything down. But I think... Just going through and knowing your favorite meals as a family, ones you know, like the back of your hand that you can cook so well, and you know everybody's going to eat, it seems overwhelming at first, but once you take the time to go through and find those few recipes and make sure you always have them at hand, it makes planning you know, so much easier, and you're happier at the end of the day. You're not rushing around trying to get fast food or, you know, cooking that box of mac and cheese that your kid's asking you to make. So that's that's kind of the way that I've developed. I call it Corey's way because, I don't know, sometimes it <laughs> makes only sense to me. 
all that. It only has to make sense to you. You know, one of the things I found with meal prep is meal prep doesn't always have to be, and I think this is part of what you're saying here, like this is a meal, but the items for the meal ready to go quickly. So, you know, we kind of glossed over freezing. So, like, one of the things I always do, like, if I'm going to blanch and freeze green beans, because if you freeze a green bee without blanching it, you made a green stick that will never be edible. Uh, so, like, that or broccoli or anything like that is going to be flash frozen. So, we'll blanch it, and we'll throw it, like, on a cookie sheet, throw it in the freezer, and then once it's frozen, then put it in a bag. Yep. Right? And then that way... That doesn't all, if you've ever made the mistake of taking a bunch of blanched vegetables, throwing it in a bag, and then throwing that bag in the freezer, I hope you wanted to use all of it because you're gonna, right? I mean, it's like that's just now you have a giant green block. Um, so if you've done that, and and then in the freezer you have frozen green peppers, frozen green beans, uh, you know, uh, frozen broccoli, and, and other vegetables, and you've done that thing with the chicken. And you want to do vegetables with that at the end. Well, you pull the chicken out of the crock pot. You grab a few handfuls of each thing, throw them in the crock pot, let them cook through. Put right. it on a plate next to the chicken with the chicken juice on it. Done. Gravy. Right? And, like, so thinking that way when you're doing your preservation to how do I make this so if I want a handful of this or a full serving of this as a side, I can just grab it and go is, like, the number one thing I think you can do. To, it's, it's, it's like meal prep, and it's, it's kind of what I had to do because – What you said about sitting on a weekend and making every meal for the week, huh. I, I, I'd, shoot, I'd sooner you know shoot myself in the head with an airsoft gun than do that. Mm -hmm. It's just I'll tie flies, I'll reload ammunition, but I am not you know right now I'm making massive amounts of food for our workshop and I, I get a lot of pleasure out of it, but I'm also really glad when it's done. <laughs> right for sure. I, I think too what a lot of people might miss when they first start doing food preservation is they think they have to do everything a certain way. Like, cause you're talking about freezing green beans. Yeah. So I, we, we used to do that and I do it on occasion, but I decided to can them for the first time, like two years ago, because I wanted to practice pressure canning. And I was like, eh, we don't really like the green beans that much. I'll just see how this goes. That way, if I kind of, if I ruin them, I'm not that upset. It's not like I ruined venison. God. Yeah. So we, turns out, We super love when we can the green beans. So now I don't even freeze them anymore because we don't really eat them that way. So I think that's important to keep in mind when you're preserving your summer harvest. Don't freeze a bunch of stuff if you don't like the way frozen carrots cook up. You know, don't can a bunch of stuff if you hate the way canned green beans taste. You want to preserve them in a way that works for you and your family. And you want to preserve them in a way that you know you're going to cook them. And so I really try to keep that in mind, like what's going to make this vegetable, this meat, whatever, the most versatile for me and my family so that I can cook it in as many different ways as possible. I, I agree with that, you know, and that, that is about knowing your own family and, and what's going to work for you. And there's a lot of cool stuff. Like you mentioned, you guys can venison now and like. There are, there are cuts of venison that that is a fantastic idea for because you've got this great, wonderful resource. But if you can't a backstrap, you have sinned against food. Like, oh. <laughs> right? I mean, like, you know, you know, do that, you know, but like, like, so that's the, that's the deal. You know, you figure out what works for you with this resource that you have. And one of the nice things about where you live is it is a very resource, uh, intense climate. 
Like yeah. I was mentioning some things I miss, and about the only thing I don't miss about the Northeast, other than government, uh, which had where I lived had very little impact on my life other than the income tax that, that the Pennsylvania has, um, yeah. was about the second week of February to like the third, the second to third week of March, like that depth of winter cabin fever. That's where I'm like, I, why do I live here? The rest of the year, it, it's so fantastic, the resource. I don't know if you guys have gotten into, like, mushroom foraging, but, like, people's like, well, go forage mushrooms. In Texas? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've tried to cultivate mushrooms here, and they're like, no, nah, boss, I ain't doing it. Sorry. You know, you give it shade, you give it moisture, it's still like, no, I'm not doing this. You get mushrooms, but not the ones you want to eat. Um, but, like, up there, we would just go out, and we would find morals, and we would find ram's heads, and chicken of the woods, and all these great mushrooms. And there's so much resource available uh, in your area. And, 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 man, deer hunting, another thing that's, like, everybody thinks that Texas is great for deer hunting, and it is if you have money. The, the public land for hunting, that must be something that, you know, your husband really enjoys. Oh, yeah, for sure. He um, he hunts, he starts bow season, he hunts all the way through mm. to muzzleloader season. He's a fantastic bow hunter, so he goes out as often as he can. And we've got, my family has some property up here. So he hunts on private land and he, awesome. or excuse me, public land, and he hunts on our private land a lot. And, and we also, I have a dear, dear friend. She is an amazing forager. I've not gone out with her yet, but she's every now and then will bring me some of her bounty. And she's so, I mean, she like the, what all the mushrooms you were saying. We yeah. also have a lot of wild leeks around here. A couple of my family members will forage for them. So yeah, I mean, this land is, and you know, we've got this perfect little bubble nook over here in upstate that he, we've got great land to hunt. We've got great land for foraging and growing. And it's just a really beautiful spot. How do the seasons, you know, I kind of mentioned that that cabin fever period, you know, and I always have friends like, get into ice fishing, man. Yeah, you get in ice fishing. <laughs> I'm not sitting out on a frozen lake. I, it, you know, you just, I don't know. I think that, like, the ice fishing in places like Minnesota or something, it's, the lakes get so thick, they, like, tow cars out there and shacks and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like fishing in a house or something. And it that was not how PA was. So, I mean, I, I know about that seasonality, but it also, I think, gives, like, a rhythm to life. Oh, like, yeah. I've been watching, I don't know if you've ever seen Tales from the Green Valley. I've been rewatching that on, on YouTube, which is a fantastic series out of BBC on, like, what was life like in the 1600s in the countryside of England. And it's it's all built around that seasonality. How does that affect you guys? So, we, like, I love living by the seasons. I got so excited when you said that. <laughs> so I never used to to live that way, live seasonally, but now it has just a totally different meaning for me. And it's a total rhythm to our life. So there are times when we're we're really, really busy. The garden is booming and we're taking care of that and we're we're eating seasonally. So we're only eating what isn't we're not eating strawberries in the middle of winter unless I froze them or dehydrated them. We're really trying to eat with what's in season. And you know, we're coming you know, we're in the middle of fall right now, which is typically a, a super busy season for us, canning and preserving and stuff. But I've learned to really love the winter. You just said you, you're you not a huge fan of winter. But for me, like, that's my downtime. Hmm. 
that's my time. I'm a, I'm a maker. I call myself a maker. So that's when I can do all my crafts and I can, you know, cozy up and read all the books and I can do all the things because I worked so hard during the summer and the fall to, you know, get us all ready for winter. We can just kind of cozy up and make yummy food and spend time together as a family. So the winners I've come to really look forward to because I, they really are. I mean, God, they're gray and yucky. And if there's not <laughs> snow on the ground, like what's the point? So, but I've come to really appreciate that season and it really helps me recharge and get by the time, you know, March comes along, we're itching to get back out and build up the garden again. So seasonal living is everything. Like that's, that's how we do everything in life right now. Just to be clear, I don't hate winter. I hate the depth of winter. It's like, okay. you know, like, when, no, no I, I miss the snow and all that from up there, right? So, like, going into the holidays and even, like, second season archery for us was, like, first week of January, you're cold out in the woods and all, but you come home with a big steaming bowl of bean soup or something. Yeah, that's all good. You get into about mid-February, though, and you're like, yeah. I'll tell you this way. I felt I felt about that the way I feel about the F-35s strafing over my property right now, right? So back when I first moved in, I, you know, this house, and Lockheed's only a few miles from here, and, like, these two F-35s with their wings almost touching come screaming through just under, you know, uh, just under uh, supersonic. And it was like, that's really cool. About three years, I'm like, yeah, I'm... I'm 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 over that. I I I don't need. And that's how I would feel about the winter every year. This is awesome. I'm out fox hunting in the snow and tracking them down and you know running my trap lines and all. And now it's like February 17th and it's like three degrees, which just is. I'd rather it be zero. Three is insulting. It's like I don't get the credit for zero and it's cold as crap and and, and there's nothing to do and I'm stuck in my house and I want to be out hunting, fishing. You know, it, it's not even worth scouting at that point. You go out, your face freezes. No, nah, yeah. no. Nah. But, you know, I think it makes you appreciate that explosive spring then. Like For you sure. were talking about uh, wild leeks and all. Like that's one of the first things to come around. Like you're like, you 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 love that. Or tr For me, it was trout season, you know, when they when they open the trout streams up. Like it's just so explosive. And that, that seasonality is something I miss because we pretty much have uh, hot and dry, hot and wet, Really cold, and then, like, even when it's really cold, you get, like, two days of that, and then it's hot and dry or hot and wet on both sides of it, you know? I mean, like, and, and I, I do miss that a great deal, and it does give that life rhythm that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, the the February time, March-ish, I always say that's a good time to plan, like, a trip to Florida. Mm. Like, go get out of, I have family that lives down south, so, like, for me, that's a good time. Cause yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I love the winter. I love being cozy and stuff. But I hear you. There gets to a point where you're like, oh, okay, that's that's enough, and that's always a good time to. Cause you're not doing anything in the garden. It's usually kind of slow as far as work goes. It's a good time to go play in the sun for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all that's almost kind of like the the COVID lockdown, right? Like uh, at the beginning, it's like, oh, it's no big deal. I'm like, no, nah, I need to go somewhere. <laughs> I I need to go somewhere bad. <laughs> just to just to kind of reset the mind. I, I, yeah, it is a good time. Of course, that's when all of you guys go to Florida and mess it up. Anyway, um, <laughs> I did not go this year. <laughs> how is uh, that's a joke. Anyway, um, 
Because my, my family were transplants from, from the Northeast down to Florida, so I get to make fun of it. Anyway, um, you guys are both entrepreneurs. That creates some uncertainties. How do you guys handle that with parenting and homesteading and all that stuff? Man, so we have not figured it all out. So sure. we're just, <laughs> I will preface it with that. So I've been an, an entrepreneur for a lot longer than my husband, so I'm kind of used to being slightly uncertain, but I, how we deal with it is we communicate a lot. So we sit down together a lot. We, we look at, you know, what's coming up, what's coming, you know, you know, money wise sometimes I'm, I'm assuming, is that what you're saying? Like yeah. money wise? Well, that too. I mean, anything, whatever, however you want to take that work wise. So I think you're going to have times where you're both not busy and that can be stressful. But I think it's important to make sure you're always doing what you can do to promote your business and, and just, you gotta always hustle. You got, I don't, I, I don't know any other way to say it other than you just have to always hustle. And we've also kind of, you know, designed our life in such a way that we have learned to live smaller. So we've learned to live without some things. I know I've heard you say this on the podcast and I like to think that we kind of do this well. You learn to kind of suffer a little bit. So if you have to, you know, be without TV for a while, you got to figure it out. You know, um, we've made a list of things that are important in our lives and things that we spend our money on, that we spend our time on. And you just are constantly evolving and you're constantly moving. You're constantly figuring out how to always make it work. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that it's all puppies and rainbows because there are times that it gets a little it gets nerve wracking. But in my experience, it always ends up working out because you're you know, we're always willing to work hard and we're always doing that extra step to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and our family. On some levels, I think that does sort of take care of itself. And the way that I mean that is if you if you don't think that way, you're probably not going to be a successful entrepreneur anyway. Yeah. And, and I think I, I've, the only people that don't think that way that call themselves entrepreneurs are not really entrepreneurs. They're kind of hybrids. Like I knew a guy when I lived in PA um, that, you know, he said he worked for himself. And well, what do you do? I'm a drywaller. Well, what he meant was he's he's a contract drywaller. Well, it was still like whether or not you know he worked for like two different generals, so at least he had some options. But like, there's a job, you do the job. There's another job, you do, it wasn't even you know he wasn't even bidding jobs. He was being handed work, and he was like basically you're an employee with all the responsibilities of of an entrepreneur, but none of the benefits, right? Yeah. And, and like so, that guy might think. Otherwise, but I think most people that are, if you're an entrepreneur and you're still doing it five years down the road and you're a real entrepreneur, you're probably, you know, working with that hustle ethic and that doing what you can with what you have while you can do it mindset yeah. anyway. I've had times like, you know, for me, if my, if my web server's down, that's a catastrophe. That's my whole business. Yeah. But it happens and yeah. I can't fix it. My tech team and my host have to work on it to fix it. Now I can sit there you know, pooping a brick for the whole period of time because my whole livelihood's down, or I can say, okay, here's what I can do. And, yeah. and that's usually a pretty short window or I'll have a heart attack. Um, but no matter how wide that window of, like, I can't do this thing that really needs to be done for right now is, you have to focus on what you can do. Yeah. Yeah, and 
you know, there are times where, you know, I work in a salon, so there are times where it's not, we're not busy. I'm not busy. And there's nothing I can do about it. It's seasonal. You know, sometimes I'm crazy busy and, you know, there's no time to pee. But for the <laughs> most part, you're, you know, there's occasionally there's times where you're just not busy. And those times used to, they still stress me out. But now I've learned to say, okay, you were gifted this time where you're not super busy at work. What can you do at your home to make that a better place to make your life, you know, more free to make your life more rich at home because there's always something I could do at home. You know, I have, a, I have a homestead. We have a, a homeschool. Like there's always something you can do. So sometimes those, the, you know, it gets, it can get stressful when money gets involved, but I've learned when you kind of roll with those punches a little bit, when you roll with those unplanned, you know, quiet seasons, as far as, you know, business goes, there's, Oh, it always opens up a pocket for something else. You know, it opened up a pocket for me to start another business. So you just kind of, you got to roll with it. You got to roll with it. You know, I met a young man that, that was the guy that cut my hair when I lived in Hot Springs. And I really never thought about, you know, a stylist, a barber, et cetera. How, how, how heavy that workload actually is during a busy time. But like I was, I was talking to him and he was, he was hustling because he was trying to build up to where he could afford a bigger place so he could start renting chairs to other, other barbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he started talking to me. He's like, yeah, there's days when I'm on my feet nonstop for 14 hours. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was like, you know, you don't think of it as being labor intensive as a business, but it really is. And I think that that's the whole, you know, you got to walk in the other person's moccasins before you can understand. And at least, you know, at least mentally put yourself in that position. So, yeah, I imagine it's it's like one of those jobs. It's like, man, you just got to work your brains out and then... Pfft, Kind of like yeah. military service, like hurry up and wait, you know. Yep. Uh, but it's also a good business to be in because hair's not going to stop growing anytime soon. How did how did COVID affect that business for you? So I rent a space. So there's me and my lovely coworker. She technically owns a salon. Okay. So I rent a space from her. We kind of operate it together, although she's you know the like the boss so to speak she doesn't like it when I call her the boss but anyway <laughs> <laughs> so it's just the two of us we were shut down for 11 12 weeks and we were able to come back uh June 1st is when I went back it was stressful like not being there at the time my husband had his nine to five so you know we were not without anything and you know when her and I went back to work we were fortunate because there's only two of us it was super easy to to follow the protocols that we needed to just open back up again. Mm-hmm. And um but man, I'll tell you, we joked about it while we were on, you know, the lockdown. I said, "I think we are pandemic proof because even though we were shut down, you know, people still were like, "I need my hair done." Yeah. Can we get my hair done? And I'm like, "Okay, cool." So so if I had any doubts, you know, because technically I'm in the industry of, you know, luxury. People don't need their hair colored. They love to have it colored. It's a way to take care of themselves. And I love that I can do that. But it made me feel good that even though we were in the midst of a pandemic, like I was never going to be without business. You know, I was always going to have that. And honestly, I was able to kind of fall back on my other business, too, while we were on. It was, it's, it's still in its infancy right now. I have a yarn dyeing business. So I was able to do some of that on the side while I was shut down. So, you know, income did stop a little bit, but you know, life of an entrepreneur, you don't ever stop. 
you're hustling all the time. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what does self-sufficiency really mean to you guys? What, what, what does it look like to you and your family to be able to call yourself largely self-sufficient? Okay. Being self-sufficient to me means we have freedom. So we are able to kind of take care of ourselves no matter what happens, when the weather happens. I love, you know, we would rather have time than things. So we work really hard to create a life that is full of things that we want, things that we have. We have the do-it-yourself type of mindset. So I like things that are sustainable. I love to do things that will get rewards from years to come. I think just being, being, I think it was you that said this, just being responsible for your own existence. And I, I kind of love that. I think it was you. And I just love that mentality. I love that, you know, you're, you're going to need food. You're going to need a house. You're going to need things to, you know, you're going to have little luxuries in your life for you and your family. You're figure out a way to make those happen because nobody's going to do it for you. And to, you know, to me, that's self-sufficiency because having things like a pandemic happen and knowing that we're going to be okay and we're still going to have all the things that we love and our life isn't really going to change a whole lot because this is just how we live anyways. That kind of, you know, I didn't have to worry about going to running to the store. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to do for Gatlin school. I didn't have to worry about how I was going to make money because We've put certain things in place. We've made things happen for ourselves. We made them happen to make sure that we could always live a life that we love and that nobody can tell us what we can or can't do. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Now, I know from reading your notes here that one of the things that you guys do, and it's like a really important thing to you, is that you do a lot of homemade holiday and birthday gifts and things like that. What makes that so important to you? I, I imagine with one of the, your kind of things that you do with, uh, I think you do yarn or wool production or something like that, um, that might fit into that. But it seems like it's a bigger thing than it just matches up with that part of your life. Yeah, so I think that would totally tie into self-sufficiency too because, you know, one thing that happened while we were in the lockdown is Easter. Mm. and. I happen to see quite a few people panicking, like, oh, we got to fill our kids' Easter basket, which is so sweet. And I get it. I know I totally get it. As a mom, I get it. But I think it challenged me because I said, all right, cool, Corey. You have Easter coming up. You want to make this special for your son. How are you going to make that happen without, you know, by staying? Also, I love staying home. I will preface it with that. <laughs> so it wasn't <laughs> like I wanted to stay home. So I challenged myself. I'm like, what can you do? So every holiday, every birthday, I make sure that my son and my husband, they get something that's homemade from me. And it can be all sorts of different things. So for quarantine Easter this year, I made my son an outfit. I've been really working on my sewing skills. And I made him these cute little swim trunks and a T-shirt to match. And I made him a stuffed animal dinosaur that I knew he would love. And then I took it a step further because I'm like, you got to have candy for your Easter basket, right? So I made some homemade peanut butter cups. 
and I stuffed them in his basket with some of our farm fresh hard boiled eggs. And it, you know, I could, it was just so, I thought it was all stuff that I knew he would love and that really I loved spending the time and doing it for him. And I really love making gifts for people. My husband, he got last year, I think for Christmas, I made him uh, bacon jam, which was kind of fun. So, so for me, I think it's, I love doing those things at the holidays. That's what makes them special. That's what makes us be able to be a little bit more self-sufficient because I don't have to go out and worry about, oh my God, like spending a ton of money on Christmas. I know how to show my love and give from my heart in other, in other ways. And, um, it's just, I just love it. I love me. I just love making things. So I think that's why it's super important to me. Very, very, very cool. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. Um, I see, the only thing I see on here, I don't see you have a website or anything like that, which probably makes your life a little bit easier to live because it's so much work to document things. I kind of wish you had one though, but you do have an Instagram where you share stuff like that, right? Yeah, so um, people can follow us on Bartholomew Homestead. Uh, we have an Instagram. We have a Facebook. And I post a lot of stuff on my own Instagram as well. And I've got a lot of, you know, my different yarn stuff on there. And anything I'm making and anything that we're doing on the homestead, you can you can find it all in there. Website's in the works. I don't know. I've got plans. Hmm. But <laughs> we'll see. For right now, that's kind of how we're how we're doing all of our stuff gotcha gotcha well hey i appreciate you being with us today uh cory it's been a great interview like i said these are some of my favorite interviews to do and uh thanks for spending some time with us today hey thank you so much for having me this has been a super fun experience you know again these these really are my favorite types of interviews and if you have a story to tell about your life that, that is in, you know, in some way similar to this format. It doesn't have to be the same thing. I, I don't want everything to be the same thing. Um, but definitely consider marking your calendar for the 10th of December. That's when the guest form will go back up, especially in those uh, downtimes of winter. You're going into January and February is what we'll be booking for then. These are great shows for that period of time. So uh, get, on, get on the site on the 10th and... Uh, Get that form filled out if you want to come on and tell your story about your homestead or your life or anything you got going on that you would want to share with the TSB community. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. Let's start by reminding you, hey, you know, there's a really easy way to help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. It's T-SPAS, 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 right? If I say it seven times, T-SPAS, 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 that's seven times. Now you can't forget it. And that's a trick, marketing trick, but really... What is T-SPAS? T-SPAS is where I do all my reviews of the products that I buy online. And if you're going to shop online, you can see all of those reviews. You can know 100% that if I recommend something, I've bought it, I spent my money on it, and I would buy it again, or I would not recommend it to you. I don't have one of these sites where I have like 10 of everything and tell you the best one is this, and then for the mid-price, no. Uh-uh. I bought this because this is the best bang for the buck. This is the best way to be frugal and not cheap and make the best purchase. Integrity is my brand. It's the T-SPAS brand. And uh, if you start your online shopping there, no matter what you buy, though, you will help us out. That's the really cool part of it. Today's item of the day, I've brought this around a lot this year. I learned about it from Nurse Amy of Doc Bones and Nurse Amy, Doom and Bloom expert council folks. It's the Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. She originally found it, you know, Bones is kind of at 
the high risk category for COVID. And uh, especially early on, we didn't know. They were <clears throat> doing everything they could to make sure, like, do everything you can to protect yourself. And one of the big problems uh, that people with COVID get into is what's known as a cytokine storm. That's when you're basically your immune system attacks your own body. And so she did this research and found these five different mushrooms that have been shown to reduce cytokine storm in cancer. So she shared that with me. And I read this study and I have it linked to it. And this is an amazing study. But I started digging deeper into it, and the, seven, the, the five mushrooms in that study were there, plus two more. And when I started looking into the anti-cancer properties, not just the reduction in cytokine storm during cancer treatments, but in the direct anti-cancer properties of these mushrooms, I knew it was that there was a lot of it to do with mushrooms, but I was blown away. And it was research and more research and more research. And like I'm like, okay. And when I looked at this stuff, And I realized I could like buy enough for my wife and I for half a year for $25. bucks. i am like, you know, at $0.14 cents a day, to give yourself this level of kind of a, a no-risk possible insurance policy to either reduce your incidence of potentially having cancer or if you do, to have a better chance of getting through it, that's like, that's like a non, that's not an issue. And I'm saying, I can't say this stuff does anything because I'm not a doctor and don't play one on TV or on a podcast. What I'm saying is, I always say the science is not settled ever or it's not science. There's always more to know about a thing and there's always the possibility of being wrong. But there is a point where science becomes overwhelmingly in favor or against something. The science, when it comes to mushrooms and their ability to provide anti-cancer support to the body, in my personal opinion as a layman, is overwhelming. So overwhelming that at 14 cents a day, to be able to take something that probably does help, you got to do it, or it doesn't make any sense. That's my view, and that's why I love this stuff. Again, it's called Sacred 7 Mushroom Extra Powder, and really check out, if you've not ever, when I brought it around for you, if you've never actually read the study, it is a fascinating deep dive into what these Miracles of nature, in my opinion, can do. The mushrooms that are in this are agracious, reishi, coriceps, turkey tail, and mataki. That's, that's the five that were in Amy's study. There's two more that are included in Sacred Seven. They're lion's mane and shaga. I mean, this is the best product I have found for the money on the market. And you know what it is? It's these seven mushrooms in equal parts dehydrated and ground up into a fine powder that will dissolve into warm liquid. Next ingredient, nothing. That's all that it is. It is a pure mushroom powder. When you put and use a quarter teaspoon a day, that's all you got to use. When you put a quarter teaspoon of it into a cup of coffee and you put another cup of coffee next to it without it in it and you taste the two cups of coffee, you could never tell which one you had put the mushrooms into Because it's such a small amount and because coffee is so strong. Now, you can put it in any, if somebody asks me, can I put it in tea? Can I put it in soup? You can put it in anything you want. Probably be good in soup because it's mushrooms, right? Even if it did have flavor. But you can do anything you want with it. It's just the way most people drink coffee. It dissolves completely in hot liquid. And so it's easy to every morning, your first cup of coffee, drop a quarter teaspoon into it. I actually got a little quarter teaspoon measuring spoon. I keep it in the bag. 
And I'll tell you the truth. I take a big heaping teaspoon of it, or a quarter teaspoon of it. It's so more like a half. You know why? Because it's cheap and it ain't going to hurt me. It's freaking mushrooms. All right. With that, the other way you can help support us is be part of the Members Support Brigade. If you want to do that, just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more about that. And let's go ahead and rock on out with our song today. Except it's not going to be rock. It's going to be country. But it's kind of rocky a little bit because it's like, to me, the band that brought the classic rock sound into country music and transformed it. And that, of course, is Alabama. And there's some of that in this one, but they did more with it later on. This was kind of some of their early work. Um, even though it was released in 1980, I believe this song actually was first actually recorded and cut and written in 78. Um, it's called Tennessee River, and it is one of their better-known songs. And like I've been saying, the year 1980 really, to me, in my opinion, is the point where the torch was passed from one generation of country music megastars to the next. The, 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 the prior generation didn't go away. They still make great music for another 15, 20 years. Some of them shit 40 years later are still around. You know, I don't know how, but they are. Most of them have gone. Um, but a couple of them are still around. So they didn't go away, but everything changes. Everything changes in 1981, 82, 83 about, you know, when you look at the top 10 country songs for the year, it, it, it's dominated by these new players with this new sound. But it wasn't a sound like a lot of the crap now that has ruined country music. It was really great music. In 1980, though, you just got to barely see it in the top five. This is this is the meat in the sandwich, so to say, in the middle, right? So we've had two of the old guard at five and four. Today, Alabama, which is an old band now, right? People say, old Alabama. What the hell are you talking about? I, Alabama's not, oh yeah, they are. Um, yeah, 40 years, man. Uh, and then tomorrow and Friday, you'll have two more of the old guard. And I think it's a really interesting thing to look at these points where music transforms naturally and becomes more. And I'm sure there's people that love the new country. It just ain't one of them. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.